Zero-knowledge proofs have broadened the realm of use cases for applied cryptography over the past decade. From privacy-enhanced cryptocurrencies to applications in voting, finance, protecting medical data, and more. In 2018, Dr. Eli bin Sasson and his team at Starkware introduced ZK Starks, a new zero-knowledge construction that functions without trusted setup, thereby broadening what zero-knowledge systems are capable of. But what are zero-knowledge systems? And what do they hold for the future of applied cryptography? We'll talk about ZK Starks and more with Eli in this episode of Cryptography FM. Eli Ben Sasson is a co-founder and president of Starkware. He has been researching cryptographic and zero-knowledge proofs of computational integrity ever since he received his PhD in theoretical computer science from the Hebrew University in 2001. Eli is a co-founder of the Stark, FRI, and ZeroCash protocols and a founding scientist of Zcash. Over the years, he held research positions at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, Harvard, and MIT, and most recently was a professor of computer science at Technion, which he left to co-found Starkware. Hi, Eli. Hi, hi, Nadim. How are you? Thank you very much for joining us on this show. Uh, zero knowledge systems, a very exciting topic. Um, and uh, you have a company uh, called Starkware, which is working on inventing new cool stuff and cool frameworks and programming languages that allow people to apply zero knowledge research and zero knowledge systems in new ways. But mm -hmm. Eli, what are zero-knowledge systems? Maybe we can start with a very, very high-level sort of overview of what is zero-knowledge, uh, what are zero-knowledge proofs, what are zero-knowledge constructions? Yeah, so, so first of all, I'm assuming I'm talking to people who have a little bit of interest in background in cryptography. Um, so I'll give that kind of introduction. So 1985, um, uh, you know, fundamental work appeared um, co-authored by uh, Shafi Goldwasser, Silvio Mikali, and Charlie Rockoff, uh, which introduced uh, uh, interactive proofs and zero-knowledge proofs. So um, what interactive proofs and proofs in general achieve is assurance of computational integrity, which means you know, knowing that a certain computation uh, operated uh, correctly with integrity. Um, if you will, these are systems that allow you to prove special cases of the bounded halting problem. So you want to know that someone ran a computer program, or you can think of it as a Turing machine, um, on a bunch of inputs and reach a certain final state or a final output. And that's indeed the output that uh, she reached. Um, so you would like to live in a world where uh, you know such statements are, are correct and no one is cheating and uh, making false statements and proof systems in general allow you to get that uh, assurance in the integrity of uh, some other party running a computation and doing so even if you don't trust uh, the other party at all but you only trust uh, the existence of uh, cryptography and in certain models you don't even need to trust cryptography at all because you can have information theoretic proofs uh, for instance the original um, ip framework is such 
So that's what proofs in general give you. They give you computational integrity. And zero-knowledge proofs in particular, um, they have two um, aspects that are very uh, nice about them. One is that um, the aspect captured by the phrase zero-knowledge, which says or means that um, looking at the proof, you learn nothing about the inputs or the computation that went uh, beyond what you can learn from the statement that was proved. Uh, so if I prove that I know a pre-image of, you know, whatever, the, the, the string one, two, three, four under SHA-2, you know that I know such a pre-image, but you don't know any information about, uh, you know, the third bit of this pre-image and, um, by looking at the proof. And the second aspect, which is the one actually that um, we are targeting more currently at Starkware, is that of scalability, which means that the time needed to verify a proof is logarithmic in the size of the computation being asserted as being correct. And simultaneously, the time needed to generate the proof is merely quasi-linear or uh, you know, t times uh, polylog t, where t is the running time of the computer program that you're asserting correctness of. Uh, so that's uh, zero knowledge proofs for you. Absolutely. So the the audience for the show is indeed. Uh, I would like to thank uh, generally like master students or or maybe like first year PhD students. This is the sort of uh, person that I have in mind, and I think it allows to keep uh, a sort of like balance um, mm-hmm. in terms of like not being too theoretical or too too non theoretical. Um, one cool paper that I've uh, read is uh, written by Jean Jacques Kiscater. And uh, it's called How to Explain Zero-Knowledge Protocols to Your Children. And he has uh, two examples. And one of them is this Alibaba cave example, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, So someone goes into a cave and then um, there are like two pathways into the cave. And then when you're inside the cave, um, you can prove that you you know, know how to control the pathways into the cave because you can go in and then go out from any chosen pathway by some like questioner, uh, interrogator. Mm -hmm. You can say Mm -hmm. like, uh, I want you to go out from the first path or the second path. And since you're able to go out from both paths, you can, you know, show me that you wield control over the pathways without necessarily Mm -hmm. showing me how or showing me how you entered, something like that. Um, I'm, I'm totally bastardizing that explanation, but it's fine. Uh, so zero-knowledge proofs allow us to do a whole ton of things. And if we look at your uh, paper, which you uh, co-wrote with uh, Ido Bentov, Yinon Horish, and Michael Ryabzev in 2018, we see that you are presenting a new type of zero-knowledge construction in this paper called ZK Starks. And you present it as a way to um, provide zero-knowledge constructions without trusted setup, right? Uh, trusted setup being, we'll get into that, a, a something that makes zero-knowledge systems uh, harder to um, practically use. And so you're making it easier for zero-knowledge systems to be used, but at the same time, you're tying that is, uh, you know, uh, improvement of practicality to uh, use cases that have to do with medical information, forensic data, uh, economic and currency applications. And you tie all of that to notions of human dignity. In fact, the very first words of the abstract of the paper is, are uh, human dignity demands that personal information like medical and forensic data be hidden from the public. But veils of secrecy designed to preserve privacy may also be abused to cover up lies and deceit by institutions entrusted with data, unjustly harming citizens, and eroding trust in central institutions. 
zero-knowledge proof systems are an ingenious cryptographic solution to this tension between the ideals of personal privacy and institutional integrity. So what do you mean by this, uh, a solution to the tension between personal privacy and institutional integrity? And then we'll get to how ZK Starks in particular help zero-knowledge proofs have an impact here uh, in, the, in the practical sense. Yeah, so this is a really great question. So the way that uh, societies have dealt with integrity um, to date, um, you know, for, for millennia, looks something like this. Um, someone on behalf of, uh, you know, the government, the king, uh, God, uh, you know, society is going to be entrusted with maintaining uh, these big data sets, uh, you know, forensic data, medical data, financial data. So these would be, uh, you know, the police in the case of forensic, it would be the health uh, companies, uh, health insurance or Department of Health in the case of health records. Um, and, you know, banks and financial institutions in the case of finances. And these are all um, um, parties that are central, centralized. They are given some mandate and some, uh, you know, trust assumptions by government and society. And then you have um, delegated accountability. So you have various accountants and uh, auditors and regulators looking after these big central parties. And... Um, a lot of the rationale, and, and then this is the way that society convinces itself that these systems are operated under computational integrity, which means that only the right computations are being executed to them. And, um, you know, by and large, this system works pretty well. It's, it's not such a bad system. Um, there are some extreme cases where it can be abused uh, very easily, and it certainly lends a lot of power to these, uh, you know, central and monopolistic institutions. Um, and the reason they are given this power is that, um, well, sometimes it's because of, uh, you know, human, as we say there in the beginning of, of the paper, that human dignity uh, demands, uh, you know, privacy of your uh, medical or financial information. And then the question is, okay, if it's private information, then who can deal with it with integrity, especially when various parties are incentivized to, uh, you know, be dishonest about uh, the computations that deal with it. For instance, to take an extreme example, if you just allow all citizens to just, uh, you know, compute their own taxes and so on, then these citizens are incentivized to misreport and, you know, underreport their I think uh, their that's taxes. a great idea. I love that idea. <laughs> I, I, I personally support that idea. We should do that. Well, then you would reach, you know, you'd enter the sort of tragedy of commons. Each of us would love not to pay any taxes, but of course we need government for all the good things that government does give us. So, so that's, no, no. Uh, I, I would love for everyone else to pay taxes. I just, I don't personally want to. <laughs> right. And that's exactly the tragedy of the commons where, uh, you know, it's not a Nash equilibrium for everyone to be honest about their taxes. So you have these issues of computational integrity um, in this and other areas. So, um, the way that society has dealt with these things to, to this day, we're, we're under this sort of delegated accountability and handing off a lot of power to central institutions. Now, blockchains are an interesting uh, counterexample in, in sort of saying, no, no, we're not going to trust any sort of central parties with our data. Um, and they actually work by uh, this uh, mechanism that I like to call inclusive accountability. Everyone can come and inspect everything. Um, but this harms scalability and harms privacy because now everyone has to you know, check all transactions on their laptop. 
So um, ZKPs can basically solve uh, these problems of you know computational integrity in the face of privacy and under um, incentives to misreport. They can solve it in a different way. And the way is that there will be uh, you know computer programs that are supposed to be executed. Everyone knows what these computer programs are. You may allow um, you know any party to run these computer programs, but they must generate proofs for them. Now, once you have this situation, then first of all, uh, you know even if the party is uh, extremely powerful, um, we don't assume that it can break cryptography, uh, and and hence it cannot uh, cheat. Uh, you know, it's intractable for it to cheat. And you can also have the proofs be zero knowledge and then the inf- no information is leaked by the proofs and you can still trust the integrity of the computation that they uh, prove. So that's a different way to solve things. It's already been applied to blockchains for both privacy and scalability. And uh, in the paper that we wrote back then, we envision a world that I believe will come where even governments and central institutions will be asked by the public to, um, you know, stand by the new standards of computational integrity where they, uh, you know, when they offer computations, they append to them uh, proofs of integrity as opposed to just, uh, you know, some statement they operated with integrity. Okay. And so in your paper, uh, you say that uh, you present a proof of concept system that allows the police, an actor in the paper, to prove to the public that the DNA profile of a presidential candidate does not appear in the forensic DNA profile database maintained by the police. So the proof which is generated by the police relies on no external trusted party, reveals no further information about the contents of the database, nor about the candidate's profile. In particular, no DNA information is disclosed to any party outside of the police. The proof is shorter than the size of the DNA database. Well, one would hope so, and verified faster than time than the time needed to examine the, that database naively. I expect sequentially or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an interesting privacy topic, and I think from this one can imagine a whole host of use cases for zero knowledge systems. So, for example, uh, I could buy a concert ticket by proving that I'm above eighteen, but not with like giving out my exact age. For example, that's a simple range proof, maybe. Uh, yes. Maybe it doesn't work. I'm just, you know, wondering. No, no, it works. It works. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or maybe we could. Uh, so uh, I'm actually, oddly enough, um, recently raised uh, seed funding for my own startup, and uh, the uh, uh, seed funders. Thank you. And the seed funders w- uh, wanted a background check, and I suppose that also we could, uh, like, a background check is something that is very complicated, and there are many elements to it. But I felt it was uh, oddly invasive. And I feel like you could sort of break that down and like look at all of these things and uh, apply zero knowledge systems to them. And I think that the construction might look similar to this uh, police, like providing right. the right. sanity, like proving the sanity of a presidential candidate, essentially. Uh, we could also maybe generalize that into medical records. Yes. Uh, how, how would that work? So what, what do you think medical records would, would look like with zero knowledge systems? Well, I, I would like to hope that the way zero knowledge systems will be, you know, uh, built will be to put power back in the hands of end users. So I would like to see a situation where, you know, your medical records they may be initially signed by the various uh, medical institutions you visit, right? Um, but they reside only with you. 
And then when uh, any party asks for your medical information, you will, uh, especially if it's something aggregated, um, you know, suppose you're shopping for a new health insurance and you would like to uh, um, get a lower price for it without even revealing all of your medical history. So I would like it to be the case, that, you know, you can generate a zero knowledge proof showing that according to the health insurance's um, policy or the way it computes, you know, reductions, you are entitled to such a reduction in your rate because you have all of these, you know, uh, maybe you're not smoking and, you know, your uh, blood pressure is good and uh, things like that. And the health insurance company won't necessarily know anything beyond what it needs to know. And basically it will know, okay, you're entitled to a 5% uh, uh, deduction in your policy rate um, and uh, you wouldn't have to, uh, you know, show them the data. That's that's one example. That's that's uh, great. Like uh, you could, for example, um, like say someone has some risk factors, and say that the insurance company says that if you have more than five risk factors, you pay more, right? So I could prove that, for example, my record shows that I am a smoker. Um, well, you wouldn't reveal that. You would say like say that you're a smoker and also you have high blood pressure and also you have had cancer before, right? So you could like. Prove that your record shows that you have three or like not even three, like you could say like between zero and five risk factors or between five and 10 risk factors without revealing the exact number and without even revealing the exact conditions. But you could still prove to the insurance company that you lie within that certain range. Right. And yes. so yes. that that is that is very cool. And you could then generalize that, of course, to anything like mm -hmm. car insurance. How many times have you had a car stolen? And stuff like that 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 would be very cool um okay by the way there are, like to give one example where such things are uh, already implemented today and there's a lot of you know fascinating work going on there's a, a browser a web browser called brave um that basically wants to disrupt the way um you know the sort of uh, the economy around ads is currently working so currently um, it's all in control of uh, Google or Apple or the big browser producers. They are the ones placing the ads, the other one um, generating uh, revenues from them, um, and they're controlling the system. What Brave would like to do is, uh, you know, take out the middleman um, and allow sort of users and the publishers of, of the ads to sort of uh, um, work more closely together. And in particular, Brave would like to be uh, to, to work with technology that prevents Brave itself from knowing the exact, uh, you know, locations uh, the different uh, users have visited and so on. Um, it's a very interesting model, and it, of course, requires a lot of uh, cool cryptography, like zero-knowledge proofs and other things. And that's another example of trying to put the data back in the hands of the the end users, taking it from big corporations and doing so with the use of uh, advanced cryptography and in particular zero knowledge proofs. And uh, so your company, Starkware, recently came out with this uh, platform and programming language called Cairo. Uh, mm -hmm. Cairo is the first production grade, I'm reading from the website here, first production grade platform for generating Stark proofs for general computation, it is Turing complete and highly efficient. So Turing complete language that can integrate uh, ZK Starks into whatever program you care to create. So mm -hmm. this is really interesting because as we've already seen, even just 
thinking about the basic constructions like range proofs, which prove that a number is within a certain range of numbers, which is like maybe the most basic kind of zero knowledge proof, um, mm -hmm. or at least among the most basic ones. Already you can think of a bunch of use cases, but here you're generalizing zero knowledge systems to like a Turing complete programming language and you can just put zero knowledge stuff anywhere. Uh, so yeah. this is really interesting. And I was wondering what kind of um, use cases you see happening due to uh, Cairo and also um, in general, how does this work? And um, how is it that you're able to have something that's Turing complete and allows building, I suppose, a sort of like an arbitrary number of, of systems while still maintaining high efficiency? Yeah. Um, so um, Starkware, was founded about three years ago. And uh, we set out to use uh, the scalability of Starks, this sort of uh, the ability to prove computational integrity for programs that take, let's say, T steps, and their verification time behaves like a log of T, which is exponentially shorter. And back when we opened it, we, I mean, when we started the company, it was clear to us that blockchains are going to succeed. And when they succeed, there's going to be uh, a very... Uh, high demand for scalability and, and, and blockchains are actually not very scalable. The reason they're not very scalable is because of inclusive accountability that we discussed before. You want everyone with a laptop to be able to monitor the full uh, system. So you can't allow it to compute uh, too much because then people would be uh, you know, excluded from following and tracking what happens. So we, we already... Um, anticipated the scale problems that now everyone is talking about, which result in very high transaction fees because everyone wants to put their transactions on the blockchain. So we went out and started building systems that will allow blockchains to scale much better by putting only the uh, proofs and their verification on the public blockchain and maintaining the computations and the state of the system off-chain. So remember, the proofs uh, verifying them is exponentially small in the amount of computation being carried out. And then we went and built these systems, first of all, for a number of customers. So we're servicing a you know, spot trading company uh, called uh, Diversify that is non-custodial. We discussed earlier how you, know, you want to keep the power in the hands of the users. So the very first thing you would like is to keep the keys of the funds being traded or dealt with on a cryptocurrency in the hands of the users, which is something that um, you know, on a custodial exchange like uh, Binance or Coinbase or Kraken uh, doesn't happen. You have to hand over your assets to the exchange and you have to trust them and hope that no one you know, hacks them or you know, does an inside job and runs away with the funds like empty gox. So uh, our technology, of course, allows putting the power in the hands of the end users. Um, and we went out to scale a bunch of systems. Now, initially, the way we did it was build uh, ZK Starks, uh, actually starts without the ZK, uh, just for scalability for um, these end customers. And we built them by, by hand, uh, you know, constructing uh, what we call algebraic intermediate representations, which are systems of polynomial equations and constraints that are very succinct and capture the transition function of a computation. And we did this by hand. So the analogy would be, suppose you have a computation you want to run, I don't know, summing up some numbers or whatnot, or, you know, maybe, you know, computing an integral of some function, and you go away and you just, um, you know, wire a bunch of NAND gates on silica to do it. So it's possible, but it's going to be very complicated to getting it right and efficiently and dealing with it, right? Because 
computing, you know, a bunch of NAND gates can do anything, but it's going to be very hard to, you know, do it in the right way. That was the initial thing we did in StarCore. And then we understood that this doesn't scale very well and humans are not very um, good at uh, dealing with very complex computations in this way. So um, we built a single um, algebraic intermediate representation, AIR, um, so a single set of constraints that is very lean. It has under 50 constraints and it implements a transition function of a Turing complete CPU. So it's just like going and designing a CPU. So now you once and for all um, fix a small number of constraints. And once these constraints are fixed, um, you can describe the computations you want to do using a programming language. So we also, um, um, Starkware also defined a um, programming language and a whole tool chain that goes with it, you know, a profiler, compilers, virtual machine uh, for simulating it and um, a whole tool chain that will allow developers to write uh, programs that will have their computational integrity proved via Starks very efficiently and placed on a blockchain. So we did, built all of this tool chain and the first consumers of it were, of course, uh, was of course Starkware and our customers. So now we started designing all our systems for our end customers using this new framework. And it was very successful. It allows us a lot of feature velocity. We can program things very efficiently, uh, even complex logic. So, you know, we're launching with DYDX. It's a margin trading um, platform on top of Ethereum. It has very complex computations and we encode all of them using Cairo. And now what we're doing is we're actually opening this up into, to, to the world for everyone to use. Uh, Today, so we're talking on, on Sunday, March 14th. I don't know when this is going to air, but this evening, uh, in, a, in a few hours, we'll be running the very first um, you know, public Cairo 101 workshop for external developers to learn this language and write their own Cairo programs that they can now execute and reach a scale um, through start what, proofs. When is this happening? What time? It is happening... Um, so it's happening, it's starting 4.30 GMT today. And I cool. will send uh, you the invite. I'll get, I'll get this episode out as quickly as possible. I can edit it like very quickly and we'll get it out. Okay. Uh, so, so you were saying that you started off by capturing these zero-knowledge constructions as intermediate algebraic representations, and that was the best way you could sort of still reason about them and have them still be like usable. Uh, and then you said that you were able to um, capture all of the sort of like functionality that you needed from zero knowledge proofs in something called air. Um, what is that? Air is, exactly? air is, a, air is algebraic intermediate representation. It's a general format for defining transition. Oh, it's functions. the same thing. It's AIR. Okay. Okay. So, right. Um, but, but the question okay. is, what is the, is, is the difference is whether you construct an air for a particular language, let's say the language of, uh, you know, pre-images of SHA-2, Mm -hmm. Or whether you're defining it for a universal Turing machine, for a single, um, you know, for a single uh, machine that part of the input to it is a program, and that's what Cairo is. So Cairo comes with an air that allows you to send as the input to this air a description of a program, just like a CPU is a chip, right? You can have a chip that does only addition, or you can have a chip that receives as input a computer program 
and then runs this computer program on some other part of its and, end, and that's a how CPU. are you how are you able to guarantee efficiency for all of these compilations uh given that um you're giving so much freedom to the user to write whatever they want in Cairo how can you guarantee that i won't stumble into a thing that is very difficult to compile into an efficient uh, zero knowledge construction that's a terrific question. So, so uh, I think all architectures, all programming languages, and all CPUs are some trade-off between various things, right? Um, if you look at uh, x86 or, uh, you know, an ARM chip, or they, there are some things that are easy to do and some things that are a bit harder, and, and um, there's no perfect uh, solution. So Cairo, first of all, is the very first, uh, you know, case of a CPU air that, that, that Starker is putting out there. Um, likely, even if you look at the x86 architecture, there will likely be updates and upgrades along the way. It is, um, I would call it an MVL, a minimal viable language. So it is a very, um, it is, or, you know, another phrase would be like a just right language. So it is lean enough to be relatively efficient when you look at the complexity of proving and verifying for it, but it is powerful enough to write systems in it, uh, pretty elaborate systems in it. And for us, the proof is, uh, you know, in the pudding in the sense that we have, uh, you know, wrote all of our production systems. There are by now uh, three of them that are, you know, one of them is fully live in production. The other two are sort of warming up and soon going live with very complex logic. And for these three systems, you know, which reach scale that is unprecedented in, in the ZKP and blockchain space, um, and we did them using Cairo. So for us, this was a very strong indication that at least for now, this is uh, good enough and, and complete enough to write pretty efficiently. But of course, you're right that, um, you know, future versions will likely be um, more, um, both more efficient maybe, and also maybe have richer instruction sets and richer logic because you'll need more functionality in them, just like you see with uh, standard CPUs. This, I, I like the combination of uh, programming language theory language, like a slang and startup slang. You get like minimum viable language. <laughs> this is what <laughs> happens when, when worlds collide. Yeah, soon, yeah. soon we will have uh, like seed funding for type theory. I don't know <laughs> anything else. Um, okay. So have, so tell me more about any interesting, uh, have there, maybe it's too early, but have, have there been any sort of like real world deployments of Cairo that are cool and that uh, you can talk about uh, that are used in the real world today? And it's okay if it's, I don't, I think Cairo was launched only a few months ago at most. So um, if it's okay. Yeah, no, no, but the, the, this is a good question and I have a good answer for it. So first of all, we, we, have, um, um, we have three systems in production. All three of them are written in Cairo. So Diversify uh, deals with spot trading of cryptocurrencies. Um, DYDX does perpetual contracts, which are a form of margin trading, which is much more complex. Um, it's also written in Cairo. And it's right now in alpha mode that there are something like, I mean, last week there were more than 85,000 people on the waiting list waiting to enter and start trading on it. And uh, Immutable X is a platform for massive minting of non-fungible tokens, NFTs. You know, the world is now 
gone berserk about NFTs with this uh, sale last week of a $69 million NFT, uh, which was auctioned at Christie's. So um, if you look at massive minting of NFTs, uh, this is the only platform that uh, gives you that and trading of NFTs. Um, all three of these systems are written in Cairo. They're all you know, production systems. So, um, uh, over the summer, Reddit wanted to see whether it can um, settle uh, you know, a large number of transactions uh, for use for its users. Uh, and it uh, came up with this challenge to show how to settle 300,000 transactions over five days. So we took Cairo, we wrote a program that does it, and we submitted uh, the settlement of all 300,000 transactions on Mainnet. We were the only project to submit something on Mainnet, actually. And uh, it took us one single stark proof, and it was done not in five days, but in you know less than 10 minutes. So this was a display of uh, the power of scalability using Starks. Uh, so to, just to summarize, uh, there's a bunch of things that uh, we are already using in production on Mainnet today with uh, Cairo. And there's a bunch of tutorials. Uh, some of them are going to be explored in the workshop. Uh, for instance, for writing automatic market makers like Uniswap uh, with the scale that, that we can deliver. Uh, there's a tutorial uh, about it you know, with all the tooling needed that just came out today. Um, and I can also send you the link to that. Uh, there's a voting mechanism. So there's a whole bunch of things that uh, external parties can start building on today. That sounds great. Um, I wanted to ask you an unrelated question. What do you think about NFTs in general? Uh, I, I personally think that it's uh, outrageously nonsensical. I don't understand how you can attribute monetary value to a file, <laughs> a computer file that you can copy. But what is your view on this? Okay, so I started off at the same exact point that you were in, but then I remembered that when, you know, my dad was an avid collector of stamps and he tried to convince me to you know, try to get the passion into me. And I never understood, uh, you know, what is this thing about collecting? But then um, it is a known fact that human beings um, are prone to collecting and are prone to looking after things of scarcity, be they as simple as stamps or any, you know, any everyday object that accrues some scarcity becomes an object of collection. And just as they say, you know, they say with respect to um, um you know, sex, that the most erotic uh, organ is is the brain. So I think the same way uh, with respect to economic value, the most um, valuable aspect of economy also goes on in the brains of humans. And but there's, there's no scarcity there. It's just files. It's like a JPEG. People are buying, uh, I, I make an art piece, I make like a PNG or a GIF and it's funny or, or some, some meaningful article. And the scarcity so is in the ownership and in the eye of the beholder. I mean, think about the amount of money that people have been paying for millennia for, you know, acquiring the football that, uh, you know, Messi used in some important game. This ball is identical in every aspect to any other ball out there, right? Soccer ball, you know, of a certain, uh, whatever, of a certain, certain line. But the point is that human beings are very good at sort of recording and knowing, oh, no, no, this is the real ball that, you know, Messi kicked whatever, this famous goal. And humans are good at doing that. 
So if they're capable of doing that with respect to a soccer ball, they are, I see no reason for them not to be, as long as that there's true scarcity, I see no reason for them for saying, okay, this is the true owner of something that is infinitely reproducible. Because again, think about the soccer ball, right? Uh, it's really, in terms of its uh, soccer playing capabilities, it is completely identical to the 50,000 other soccer balls that came out of that line, right? There's nothing special about it. The thing that's special about it is that it is unique in the minds of its owners and in the minds of the others who well, converse with yeah, that. Yeah, but, but also like Messi's foot kicked the, that ball. Messi's foot did not kick the other balls. But like, again, it's also the, no... Yeah, so here it would be, the uh, analogy would be uh, that, that uh, you know, the true owner of these bits, right? They, they are, you know, it's a unique sequence of bits that gives you uh, this uh, beautiful image. And the true owner of uh, these, uh, everyone agrees upon, you know, could be you. And then uh, the world understands that. Uh, I think it's... it's uh, yeah, it's something about the human mind and there's the a, social uh, aspect. That there's a, there's an important it. question here, though. There's an important question, which is um, the true owner, right? So this is like people are coming up with this. Like, so basically, uh, the the ownership of any NFT is justified based on a NFT chain somewhere, and that chain records who owns what. But who is it that decided that this chain in particular is the source of truth? for ownership. Like in, in the real world, uh, we have a undeniable source of truth, which is just like, if I paid for it and it's in my house, I own it. Or heck, if I stole it and it's in my house, in some cases I own it. Uh, or if I paid for it, but it's not in my house, I still own it. But like there, there's still like ownership. There's no, but what if to, what if I start my own NFT chain now for the same assets and I can just get people to buy them all over again? Which I'll which give you the analogy. Be... I'll give you an, the analogy. Um, whatever your, um, you know, whatever is the sum of money that you currently have in your bank account is a bunch of bits in some file. You can start a bank. You know, you put up an Excel file, and uh, right, you can call it a bank, and you can put in, uh, you know, your name. You can put in my name, and you can put in whatever ten gazillion billion dollars under each one of us. I think uh, now the question is, who said? I mean, this is a file. The banks have a file. Who said that the banks, uh, you know, the numbers in the bank file are correct? Or, you know, people should value to them. Well, it's something about the, again, the, the human and, and the social capacity to reach consensus. And the consensus is, and, and I think the real achievement of, first of all, Bitcoin and then these other blockchains is in establishing that they can become a point of consensus about ownership. Um, now, why is this? Um, it's, it's something of a mysterious question that has to do with human psychology and sociology. But today we are living in, in at least temporarily, in a point at time that people will pay, uh, you know, fifty, sorry, sixty thousand dollars for a bunch of bits that happens to appear on this very particular blockchain, you know, and attribute to ownership of, of a bitcoin. And they won't pay $60,000 for, for the fork of it, which is Dogecoin, but they'll pay something less. So I think that's the analogy. So your NFT chain, I mean, you know, I hope it becomes successful. And then people will say, this is the real NFT chain, and they will place a lot of value to, on it. But, but if I come up and I just clone it, 
um, it won't work. I mean, that's empirically what happens today with uh, certain blockchains. So it's it's again, it's it all goes back to the human brain and the human capacity to reach consensus on certain things that are completely identical to certain other things. And yet humans say, no, no, this is the real thing. That's not the real thing. Yeah, Bitcoin is a great example of that. I mean, the only reason why Bitcoin is so valuable is because people agreed that the solution to SHA-1 problems are worth money now. And um, that went from being worth nothing to being worth insane amounts of crazy. How much, how much is Bitcoin? Yeah, but, but I just want to say that we can take it way back, you know, millennia, the way people organize around religions and nationalities and ethnicities and so on. And a lot of it is reaching consensus about things that if you think about them, you know, they are sometimes meaningless or the only meaning they have is in being a focal point of consensus. And it's something about humans that that want this and probably has some, you know, evolutionary aspects to it, to this ability of me to know that you know, that I know, that you know, that they know that we are all, you know, of this brand or we do this or mm-hmm. we view this thing and not that. And it's a very, very, it's one of the most powerful human constructs, uh, you know, mental constructs, uh, this uh, ability to consense uh, and reach agreement on something. And, and then, you know, the fact that it's now digital as opposed to some uh, ideology or some, some, some other thing that is arbitrary. Is, uh, is is not that, you know, big of a difference. So I think we're over time right now. I just wanted to ask you if you could repeat the name and uh, like maybe website for the tutorial event that you're holding later today. So that I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna like try to like put this podcast out right now, and people can listen to it maybe today. And I will send you. Uh, there's a Cairo 101. There's a Cairo 101 developer workshop mm-hmm. um, that's going to happen today, um, starting 4:30 GMT today and tomorrow. Um, and I will send you the Eventbrite uh, link uh, right away by, by email. You can uh, link it there as well as the Cairo toolchain, um, you know, and website. Uh, and then I hope uh, as many listeners uh, will join us. Okay. Please send me that information and I'll link it in the podcast description. And uh, hopefully our listeners will go and check out Cairo and uh, Starkware and all the cool ways that you can use your knowledge proofs to prove things without other knowledge being relevant to the proof but you still have a proof um this is this is the academic description of zero knowledge proofs right i I just i completely nailed it right i am very smart okay so Mm -hmm. um uh thank you very much ali ben sasson uh from starkware a cool company creating zero knowledge systems and programming languages that let you use zero knowledge systems to do stuff with zero knowledge um anything to say before we sign off uh, no, I greatly enjoy uh, your show, and I think you're doing a terrific job. And I, I, you know, at some point, I'm curious to hear more about your own uh, startup that you just launched. Yes, Capsule. Uh, uh, we're trying to do a decentralized um, sort of like writing and, and social socialing 
uh, so that people can talk and say things. I'm a big freedom of speech person. Um, I'm originally from Lebanon and uh, we don't really have that over there, especially the part of Lebanon where I'm from and that pisses me off. So I kind of look at Western societies and think that people don't realize um, how, 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 how lucky they have it and they, they start uh, silencing each other over complete nonsense. Uh, and so I am uh, trying to combat that, combat that by reminding them, hey, you know, it's really nice to be able to disagree without killing each other. This is actually important, guys. Uh, I've, yeah. I've, always, I've always had an idea that if, if one day I'm very wealthy, I would like to establish a fund where if someone claims to have like these very like uh, fashionable sort of like virtuous beliefs or be like, uh, especially like if they're an anarchist or something like those left-leaning anarchists that you find in the US, I'm like, great, you know what? The Nadim Fund for Anarchists will actually send you a free one-way ticket to Lebanon where you can go live in a true anarchy and r fulfill your dreams. You know, it's the, the only, <laughs> the, the only, the only caveat is that it's a one-way ticket. So once you're there, you stay there. Yeah. And so it's, it's really, I think this is, this is my life goal, but also more seriously, uh, I'm trying to come up with ways for people to have discourse and, 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 you know, like there are some opinions on social media where, um, uh, they're disagreeable opinions. Like people say things that other people justifiably may not like, such as, for example, uh, the in independent journalist Glenn Greenwald um, uh, frequently steps on people's toes. I personally like what he says, but if someone disagrees with him, I can totally understand that. But some people are like, I disagree with Glenn Greenwald, therefore he should be banished from respectable society. Uh, the same is true, for example, uh, children's author uh, J.K. Rowling had some uh, controversial opinions about society and gender and so on. And so, yeah, you can you can you can like really dislike what she's saying, and that's fine. I think that's perfectly okay. It's not it's not even unreasonable. Mm -hmm. But uh, the way that um, people react to these things, anyway, that's a topic for another time. Okay, so uh, thank you, Eli Ben Sasson, and um, thank you for our listeners. If you have a cool cryptography project uh, or research that you want to talk about, come on the show and talk about it. Because really, it's not, this isn't, you know, Eurocrypt or anything. It's just me on a show. So if you have interesting and cool research, you can come and discuss it and everyone can learn more and we can all benefit. But whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next time on Cryptography FM.